everyone and welcome to another Scotch VH podcast. And in this podcast I'm going to be talking to writer and musician David Keenan. Hello David. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, good, good. Thanks for doing this with us. Yeah. The reason I really wanted to get you on one of the podcasts is your novel This Is Memorial Device. Um, it's one of the best novels I've read for a long time. Uh, and I'll hopefully try and explain why a little bit later. But can you tell us a little bit about uh, this is memorial device? Well, it's 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 the document of a time and a place, the late seventies and early nineteen eighties, set in Airdrie during the post punk years. And what it is is it's twenty six roughly first person accounts of the main people involved in the music scene at the time and spiralling off into associates, friends, families. So we get this little sort of um, mythos of what happened at the time with this group called Memorial Devices very much at the centre of it. And how much of this is, um, you know, you see all these, the musical scene in Airdrie, how much of this was based on truth? I mean, I mean, it's comp- it is, I called it an hallucinated oral history, which is the subtitle, and because I, I wanted to underline that it, it's completely made up, it is completely fictitious. There was no, there wasn't really a, a, a music scene like that didn't exist in Airdrie. Yeah. There, people in Airdrie were certainly inspired by music and were doing things and and uh, forming bands and putting on concerts and writing fanzines and things like that. But more, it was, I was just a little bit too young to have been part of the seen the, the, and the time that the book's set but what it is 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 why I would see people who are slightly older generation than mine in Airdrie you know looking like aliens you know with their, with the, you know, with their jackets on and ripped t-shirts and these self-ravaged hairstyles and I would look at them as if it was the, the future personified and so in this book I wanted to indulge in my fantasy of what I thought this generation were up to or what I thought the possibilities were being part of that generation I think that's that comes across because the book itself, as you see, it's put together first person um, a rec- accounts. So it is like someone going to research a time and a place and the music behind it. And also, and we'll talk a little bit this later. You've got appendices and index, yeah. so you know it feels like almost an academic work in, uh-huh. in that way. Yeah. Um, but also, it it has got that slight out, outsider view, even though it goes into great great detail about the music and the bands themselves. Um, so if it, if it wasn't a scene that existed, how did you start to put together your scene, if you like, for the book? Well, again, it, it started from this fantasy idea, but I have to say that what I decided to do, I always wanted to memorialise Airdrie. Always wanted to memorialise Airdrie. And I just and I always wanted to write a novel. And uh, I was always writing stuff in general, but getting round to a novel, I knew if I ever wrote a novel, one of the great subjects was Airdrie. Right. It was Airdrie because it was a, to me, it was an incredibly eccentric place. I mean, I think Glasgow's an eccentric place. I went to Scotland and the strange villages around it are very magical to me. And I wanted to write a novel that would really sing their praises as magical places of possibility mm-hmm. rather than as tough places to be suffered through. So I very was very conscious of writing a novel that wouldn't be the typical sort of a uh, very sort of pro art type novel, you know, with with lots of sort of uh, vernacular and uh, and uh, uh, and very sort of um, uh, rough and tough kind of style. I didn't want that. I wanted, in fact, to be tender. To be, yeah, you know, absolutely. So yeah, to get away from that idea of the stereotypical. West of Scotland working class male who can't express himself. Absolutely. Here you've got your males expressing themselves in every way they can. Yeah. You know? <laughs> by the way they dress, by the way they think, by the way music that they do. I mean, it's it's uh, it's incredibly um, 
uh, artistic novel in that way, not just the, the way it's written, but the, the people in it too. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about Airdrie before we go into the music. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, why did you feel the, this need to, to kind of... Uh, Memorialise uh, this 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 place. Was just did you feel that these towns were places that hadn't had a fair shake? Or certainly, cer- yes, certainly. On the one hand, and, and the reputation of a town like Eildred simply didn't match my experience of it. Not to say that people who didn't grow up in a town like that wouldn't be a little bit horrified by some of the things you put up with in Eildred. And there was certainly, uh, there was certainly a lot of madness and craziness, which was part of the energy in a way. But I saw something almost behind the scenes in Eildred. I saw that how people people were hidden away in secret there, doing very eccentric things, living these lives um, hidden away, and in a way. I always liked the idea that Airdrie had this ugly, aggressive facade that because that worked to put off the curious, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, You know, yeah, as yeah. if there was this little secret thing that we weren't giving in away. It was almost like a poker face mm. when you came to see Airdrie, but really behind it, there was all this magic going on. And I experienced that as a kid. And my first interest in culture, my first interest in literature and in music were all stirred in Airdrie yeah. by people in Airdrie and all my people older than me. And it made it seem possible. It made it seem, wow, there's this thing going on around us. And a big influence on the book um, was a book that came out in, now I'm going to say 54, 55, 1955 perhaps. It was called The Book of Eardry. And some of the people who wrote in that book were alive when I was a kid. And our headmaster at our primary school, which was Clarkson Primary School, Mr Brown, who was an incredible old school headmaster, but very encouraging in terms of... Uh, uh, education and the arts and uh, fostering this kind of love in his pupils. Uh, he knew some of the people that had been involved in writing this book, so he turned me on to this book as a young kid called The Book of Eardrie. Yeah. And it came from a thing called the Eardrie Experiment in around about 1950, where they tried to find out, could you tell the story of a borough using the people in the borough to put it together? And I remember, I was uh, devouring books at that point, but I, mean, I was devouring things like G.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, sure. But when someone handed me The Book of Eardrie, it was like the Eardrie's version of Lord of the Rings. It was that weird and strange and I couldn't believe anyone had written a book about my town, about yeah, our town, yeah. that it was possible to write a book about that. Uh-huh. And not only was it, you know, they talked about uh, um, local societies, how local government was run, how the police ran, uh, incidents of drunkenness, but then they had sections about ghosts, the ghosts of Eardrie, what parks were haunted. Yeah. And so Eardrie exploded in my mind with this. I was like, yeah. Eardrie's haunted, there are ghosts, there is history, there is books to be written. Blew me away. And that was a big, big uh, influence on this as Memorial Day. Yeah, I mean, that stuff didn't really, wasn't really written about the west of Scotland. It was written about Edinburgh or yes. places in the borders, you know, totally. they had all of these kind of stories behind them and they had their own cathedrals and stuff. Yeah. But the kind of more concrete jungle that, that these places were, they, they weren't really chronicled. Or if they were, they'd stopped by the time, you know, the 60s and the 70s come round, yes. nobody was really writing about them. Totally, I think I think that's definitely true. So that was very, very exciting to me. But what? But again, I thought there's an alternate Airdrie here, and there's a way of talking and celebrating Airdrie, which is not going to be cliched, and which may be a little bit surprising. Because I think even when you front, there's two things, you front the book, and it's, a, it's theoretically, it's a book about rock band, mm-hmm. and it's a book about a small town in Lancashire. So you immediately bring certain suppositions to that. And I wanted to totally subvert, in fact, pull the carpet for under those ideas completely with the book. I'll get you in on that, but yeah. it'll very quickly transform into something else. Yeah, well, that's exactly it. I mean, I said when we were talking beforehand that it was just so unexpected, and that's one of the joys about it. Because as you say, you think, well, it's your town, it's going to be a pop music, you're, it's going to be your teenage fan club, it's going to be the story that's been told previously, yes. you know, BMX band, it's, uh-huh. and that's great. That, uh-huh. you know, yeah, it's really I, um, But 
I went, oh, Airdrie, that's not Coatbridge, and that's not Bells Hill, mm. and that's not even you know, East Kilbride, or all these other places which at the time were kind of being lauded yeah, for totally. Oh, it's never right? been on the map. And my whole thing about that as well was, I guess what I was trying to avoid, and I actually thought you couldn't tell the truth of what happened in Airdrie in those years. You couldn't be... Uh, you, it wouldn't be real if you discussed it in social realist terms, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Because social realist terms were not what the real experience of Airdrie was really like. It was a weird place. It was a strange place. And so I wanted, I, I, I knew very early on that I wasn't going to use any social realism. And I, I knew very early on that I was going to have moments where magical, impossible things yeah. take place. Absolutely. And yeah. that's, that works well through people's memories because, you know, um, substances have been taken, yeah. the time has passed. Uh-huh. Um, so through their memories that's where I kind of if you want magical realism comes out because you can say when you know things like um, uh, dressing up the dummies and you know people thinking that these have come alive and um, things, well, you think yeah. well did that happen no I don't think that did happen but then I mean it reminds me of a story about Gambusland Golf Club where someone had seen what they thought was a body in a bunker and it was an old shop dummy that somebody you know <laughs> these yeah. stories are there that you yeah, know totally. you think, did that really happen? And you go, well, it doesn't matter if they really happened or not. But it's it, all part of it. It became part of the mythos. That's yeah. totally true. And that's why there are many events that happen in the book that are told from countless different perspectives yeah. that contradict each other yeah. as well. Because I wanted to say, uh, uh, one of the central things of the book, of course, is about memory about how memory functions and I think to be true to the way that memory functions you had to have things that um, were contradictory that were conflating and that were perhaps ultimately math or fiction absolutely it's looked at, at the, all these different points of view are often the same character yes and exactly. one will say well he was a bit like this and then you'll get this oh, no no, no he, totally, like he was completely different or even there's, there's different I think at different points even the house that Big Patty lived in as a kid who's one of the main characters in Memorial Drive I'm pretty sure several different characters describe it in completely different ways one of them says it was a wee bongo somewhere somebody else says it was a big gloomy mansion you know so I like to have all these, all these little sort of conflations in there and also one more thing I wanted to say about that was when I began thinking about post-punk and how post-punk would relate to this idea about memory and not being a social realist account, I began to think that um, post-punk itself, in a way, to tell the true story of post-punk, is not to tell the story of Gang of Four, Wire, blah, blah, blah. The true story of punk are the people who never made a record. The people who were completely transformed by it, but never, ever, in these small towns that were never featured. The true story then honestly would have to be made up the yeah. true story of post-punk has to be fictional to be close to the truth of it I think that's absolutely right you know the the other stories we've, we've heard and you know uh, there was a lot of young folk that were making their music and um, Postcard Records is obviously the one that jumps out yeah. but you know these stories have already been told from different points of view mm-hmm. Crikey have they been told over and over and um, so they, they get their own myth but there was all this other music getting made. Totally. And by bands that would never get their, you know, 15 minutes of fame on top of the pops. Never even wanted it. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to go play, you know, maybe well, initially they had ideas of doing something, but actually it was it was the ideas. And that's what I think about the book and the bands, uh, for want of a better word, that are in the book, is it's more about the ideas and the music itself. The music almost doesn't really matter that Oh, I, I always say, I say that about the book. Ultimately, in the book, is it's not about the music. Ultimately. Mm. I think early on, maybe even in the introduction, like Ross Raymond says to John, Johnny McGoggin says to Ross Raymond, you know it's not about the music mm-hmm. anymore. And, and Ross Raymond says, well, what the fuck is it about? You know what I mean? And one of the book is, one of the things that the book starts with that question, one of the things the book establishes is, well, what the fuck is it about? Mm-hmm. What are all these people revisiting? Why was it so important? And maybe some of them didn't realise it at the time, but are looking back and yeah. thinking, 
that was it. We were in the, at the centre of the world. Airdrie, believe it or not, was the centre of the world for these characters who lived through it. Yeah. And they're coming to realise that. They're coming to realise how special it was. And they're coming to see, which I think the great thing about post-punk was, was it was like an existential, a mass existentialist movement that penetrated working class towns. That was amazing to me. And not only, it's not only about, it's not just about the music because the other thing about in the book is people go flying off into different things. Yeah. They're inspired because they're turned onto these to possibility and to all these different cultural manifestations of this urge, whether it's um, Russian novels, whether it's starting to paint, whether it's starting to want to be a sculptor, whether it's just want to dissipate to Palestine and be like, put a rimbo. Yeah. You know what I mean? So post-punk, all these people go exploding off in all these different directions yeah. and I wanted to say that and it wasn't just about music even, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And also you say that it went to small towns and it did because by the time punk, as far as I can tell, by the time punk got to small towns, it was almost a prescribed thing. It was like, well, this is how your hair is. Yes. This is how, as much as anything else, as much as looking like, you know, a teddy boy or looking like a mod or anything, it was it very much, it had gone through its creative period in London mainly, mm-hmm. and maybe Manchester, but, you know, arguably that's where it was. And so by the time post-punk got, people had taken on the ideas rather than the fashion and all yes. the other stuff. That was where it was getting interesting and really Totally, and I totally agree. And I mean, I think it was like, again, it was a, I think it was a hallucinated version because what you would do is you would, you would, you would kind of like semi-digest the idea of the Sex Pistols. You'd hear about them, you'd maybe hear a bit of something from uh, Nevermind the Box or something like that. But in a way, you weren't really engaging because if you listened really deeply to the Sex Pistols, it'd be, it's hard for someone who's not a musician to be able to play the songs on the Sex Pistols yeah. album. They're played by professional musicians and they're recorded in the great studio. But I I think what happened is people began to take, in post-punk, people began to take the Sex Pistols at their word and make music as non-musicians. Yeah. You know? In a way, if you listen to the Prats or the Scrotum Poles, great Scottish post-punk groups they've taken the Sex Pistols out of their word and made music as played by non-musicians yeah. and in a way they've taken it further and one of the great bylines of the book I think is it's not easy being Iggy Pop and Eardrie because yeah. the whole point is Absolutely. to be Iggy Pop and Eardrie is harder than being Iggy Pop yeah. you know what I mean you're uh, actually yeah, yeah. living it harder than being Iggy so my whole thing is a lot of these people lived it harder than their heroes exceeded yeah. their heroes through the vision of what was possible you know well, that gets to the kind of uh, bravery behind it because yes. a lot of the people um, it's not just something that they're hiding away they're dressing it and they're doing it and they're you know um, being involved in the sex industry yes. as, almost as a an artistic expression as much totally. as anything else yeah. and uh, to do that you know go back to the earlier ideas about what a small town in Scotland was like some of those stereos hold true. Some of it were tough, tough places. Oh, it was to stand out. Totally, you were taking your life in your hands. Oh, I, I saw people get doings. I mean, I saw people get savage doings mm-hmm. for looking weird. I mean, there was a one famous thing that happened to me. I was walking along the road with this punk who was called the Hamburger Lady because he had it written on the back of his leather jacket, and a guy rolled down a window and actually threw a full loaf of pan bread at us <laughs> as we were walking up the main street in Airdrie. Oh, and I'll never forget it—a loaf of pan bread. Yeah, you know what I mean. But it just—they just couldn't stand the sight of us. You know, and so it was brave, but I loved it. When I would go down to the city centre with my gran on a Saturday, these are the people I was looking at, yeah. and I would totally marvel at yeah, their bravery yeah, and their style and the way they set an example of what was possible. I loved it. So, the music behind it, I think we've said that the, the, the ideas were really important, but it, as you, it's not just that it's not about the music, it's artistic expression in general. Yes. You know, they, they, they start to... And this was something I think really did happen through um, a kind of explosion. It's not just the bands, but the music press, the way it was covered. Yes. People referencing, you know, as you say, Russian novelists or Russian or, or poets or mm. or artists or something. Avant-garde so filmmakers. Me, yeah, suddenly you go, oh, 
let's, you know, Mark Almond's mentioned this, I'm going to go and find, yes. find out what the hell that is. And it just suddenly, it was almost the beginning of people making these um, connections, which almost couldn't be made before. Yes, I totally agree. I totally agree. Uh-huh. So, um, now, when I read the book, I was thinking, this, this I, I haven't read anything really close to this in terms of Scottish writing, probably since Duncan McLean's Bunker Man, you know, this kind of novel which just goes right. I didn't expect any of that. And right. it absolutely blew me away. I was trying to th- also think what other books it reminded me of. Um, one was... Um, Kathy Acker's Blood Guts and Highs Blood and Guts in High School. Uh-huh. It's just because of the manner, the kind of energy behind the writing, the kind of um, I'm not not giving a fuck, you know, about what anyone said about it, but thought about it. That's what I got, and that's yeah. what I loved about it. So when you were writing it, what I mean, did you have any kind of reader in mind, or did you just kind of go, "Now this is what I want to get out there," and, and if anyone likes it, so I didn't have any reader. I didn't have any reader mind at all. But I'll tell you a little bit about how, how I wrote it and the context of how it came about. Um, was I actually spent I spent ten, ten years uh, writing? I'm always confused. I think seven novels. Right. In ten years, but what I did first of all is this: I decided, like, when I got to my early thirties, I decided I've always been wanting to write these novels. It's time to start, and I began being attracted by the idea of a longer project. I had no, I had no, I had no idea how to go about writing a novel. I thought I'm just going to start. I'm just going to find out how you write a novel by writing a damn novel. So I started writing this novel, and it was, it was, it was terrible. It was horrifying. It was mm. cringe-inducingly bad. But I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to get all this crap out of my system, and rather than quitting, I'm going to write an entire novel of complete crap. Without pausing or flinching, I'm going to get all my stupid ideas about how you structure a novel or what character development means or just get them all out of my system. And then what I'm going to do at the end of these two years that I, that I spent doing this, and then I'm going to destroy the novel <laughs> to prove to myself I'm capable of doing it yeah. and that I'm creating for the right reasons and that maybe I've got a chance of being a writer. So I did that. It's two years ago, this dreadful novel. I deleted it from my laptop and then my laptop broke down so I smashed my laptop with a hammer so I could never ever go back on that. And then I started another novel straight away. And I didn't have... I had no contacts in the literary world. I didn't have an agent. Didn't know how to go about it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I would buy that writers and artists yearbook that struggling writers always buy. And yeah. I would look at it, sigh, and then just put it back on my shelf. And then I'd go and I'd just say, well, you know what? I don't know how to get a book published, but while I'm writing, write. The most important things that work. I yeah. was on, I was writing. So what I would do, I would write one book, I would stop, I'd immediately write another book. I'd then go back and edit the previous book stop, go back and write another book. So I did this for, for eight years after I'd finished my first book, for eight years. And and this is memorial device was part of that right. eight years that was okay. written during then. And um so what happened was uh I was ed- I'd finished the edit on this is memorial device and I uh for the first time ever I got a contact for an editor that I'd heard of, Lee Braxstone at Faber and Faber. And I knew Lee because he'd worked with Kim Gordon and he'd worked with Joanne Cope. So I was right. a it was an editor I'd actually heard of, which yeah. was amazing. And I was like, well I've got a contact from now. So I just thought, well, okay, this seems fated. I've got a contact with an editor. I've just finished Memorial Device. Why don't I actually submit a book for once? After all this work, maybe the time has come. And um, I was totally naive. I didn't realise that you need to have an agent to submit a book mm-hmm. and that companies like Favour and Favour don't accept unsolicited yeah, submissions. Yeah, yeah. But amazingly, Lee Braston wrote back. He was, I, I wrote to him and I said, I finished a book. Um, I wonder if you'd be interested in reading it. As simple as that. And he wrote back and said, sure, send me a couple of sample chapters. Um, I didn't know how weird any of this was and so this was on a Friday so I sent him some sample chapters on Friday afternoon about two hours later he writes back and he just says I like it please send the entire book 
this was on Friday, so I sent him the book on the Friday, and on the Monday he said, can you send me your phone number? And he phoned me and Faber made me an offer for Worldwide Rights. That's incredible. So it was completely insane. But I think the lack of knowing how you're supposed to, in inverted commas, doing it probably has helped you. Naivety. I think the naivety actually did work in the end, you know. So now I know, you know, I know when I tell people that, they're like, I've never heard of that happening in my life. It's completely ridiculous. I mean, and uh, so it was incredible. But Lee, I mean, he's been amazing. He immediately responded to that energy, I think, that yeah, you were talking absolutely. about. Absolutely. You know, he immediately responded to it, which was amazing. Um, and in terms of inspirations behind it, um, yeah. you know, what were they? Was it mainly music or was there... It was, not, it, was main, yeah. it was mainly it was mainly literary influences, right. definitely books that inspired me. One of the big books that inspired me was uh, uh, Georges Perec, Life, a User's Manual. He's part of the Alipo group, a French writer. Because his book is amazing. And one of the, the inspiring things about it was he creates this schematic. The way he structures the book is he creates a sort of schematic. And the schematic is an apartment building at a certain time. Then I think what he did was he used he mapped it out and then he used chess moves as to how the chapters would relate. Right. And so you hear all these stories of these people in this one place that becomes this incredible interlocking world of parallel occurrences. And I thought, wow, imagine if you could do that for a small town. Imagine if you could do that for Airdrie. Yeah. That really inspired oh. me. And hands, hand in hand with this, I'm a real fan of, an obsessive fan of the poet Charles Olson, a yeah. collector and a lover, especially of his, his, his life work, the Maximus poems. And, and, Olsen had this thing about seeing where you are. I mean, he, this, the whole of the Maximus poems are about approaching his adopted hometown of Gloucester in so many different ways. So you have some poems that are about the history of shipping around there. You have some poems about uh, the environment, the, the tides, local characters, all this stuff. And all, all these angles in which he can investigate where you are. And again, that began inspiring me. How can I get all these different angles on the same place? Yep. obsessively the same place so those, those were definitely the, the two big inspirations structurally um, there's a book called um, uh, Please Kill Me by Legs McNeil which right, is an yeah, oral yeah. history of New York punk mm-hmm. and he also wrote an oral history co-wrote an oral history of the uh, the porn movie scene in America called The Other Hollywood yeah which is they were both really inspiring to me in, te- in terms of the oral history so I began coming together this the Perec idea the Olsen where you are the oral history from these books and pulling all these things together but what really structured it is I I, I had to let the characters live there's always this piece of like, creative writing fiction which is uh, um, advice which comes from creative writing courses which I've seen mm-hmm. and they're always they always say it's it's massively important for, even if the character doesn't understand his motiv- his or her motivation the author should understand it but uh, I, my experience was completely the opposite of that my experience was that you will often be per- per- perplexed amazed dis- and sometimes even disappointed by how your characters will behave but you have to let them do it if they're going to be alive because my whole thing is well do you really know the motivation of anyone in real life well, surely if you know the motivation of your characters, you're just a puppet puppeteer at this point. Yeah. These things are, people are not real. So the characters became real to me and I began to set them up and I really began just allowing them to interact and watching an amazement and sometimes horror at what they got up to. I love that idea. I love the idea of, of feeling um, concern or embarrassment on their behalf oh, of, right. of people. And I think, uh, well, I think you get that when you read it because you think, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. Totally. But having said that. that, you can see... <laughs> With the personality that comes across, aye, that's the kind of thing that's they exactly would do. what they would do, and it would appall you, but you're going to have to accept that that's what they're like. Yeah, yeah, absolutely interesting. Yeah. I think that's uh, w- the original point about having 
you know, if you know the motivation, well, that kind of limits you to what you would do in a way because you think, well, how do you get past your own di- moral system, totally. if you like? I mean, and then they become two-dimensional characters, really. You know, and you're just manipulating them a little bit and you know exactly... You're treating them the way you would never treat a living being. And that's crazy to me because the big thing, again, when we talked about a schematic, another big influence on me and a strange influence is William Burroughs. And I've come to him quite late in life. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan, was a big fan of the Beats and of course grew up with Kerouac and Ginsberg blowing my mind and and Burroughs always seemed cold and a little bit difficult. In my later life, I think he's an absolute genius. I've fallen in love with him, especially his later works like the um, Cities of the Red Knight, Uh Place of Dead Roads, that last trilogy. Some of the most magical... Uh, writing and, I, and when I say magic I mean when I'm talking about the characters coming alive I think Burroughs has techniques to make books as close as they can possibly be to living entities mm-hmm. and I began to think how is it possible to do that with a book and this was before I'd ever read Cities of the Red Knight but I was obsessed by his title Cities of the Red Knight and one night I had this flash of inspiration that the Cities of the Red Knight are the internal organs so then I began to think Wow! Imagine if you could make a if, if you could turn a book if you could use a book in the sort of magical way that say uh, Judaism mystical Judaism could create a golem using mm-hmm. language. Uh-huh. And I began to think, can you make a book come alive in that case? If you're able to use language, unlike the original Adam Adam Cademon, if you're if you're able to use language to actually create these entities, then couldn't a book? become a complete being so how would it become a being under the influence of Burroughs and Cities of the Red Knight I mapped my own book according to a scheme where the chapters were like the the internal organs and then I mapped the way the characters would move about as if it was moving bloodstreams and things through a body and so I began to think as you read through the chapters the 26 stops that are like organs or internal aspects of the body you accumulate everything becomes more alive because you're constantly accumulating more information and different takes on the characters so it becomes this thing that by the end I like to think is alive mm-hmm. has become a, like a living entity that you can interact with that, so that was very much on my mind whether I could use these techniques to give it some kind of like organic life That's you know really, I mean it, it almost sounds like um, Wittgenstein's philosophy of language or, or even uh, kind of when the way that Sartre looked at literature is that you are um, that this is you're creating you're talking about something real it's almost not fiction and that you are creating um, realities created through the language you're using so the reality of the your novel was created absolutely through the choice of language that you're using and the choice of language that your characters are using as well there's almost like a two step thing there too it's coming through I mean I'm a big fan of the poet Jack Spicer and he would always talk about uh, dictated poetry that the poetry was dictated and he would always talk about how somehow that he, that he has this like he says when you're talking about how to write in this way and definitely when you know when people say well where does it come from I mean I think if, as, if, as an author you, you have to be honest at one point and say well there's no I have no idea where it comes from yeah. it becomes an act of faith when you sit down and you allow yourself to be possessed almost and Jack Spicer would always talk about he was like imagine Martians are trying to communicate with you and all they've got are these building blocks that have the, the letters of the alphabet on it yeah. you know and what he would say is he would try and say well try and get yourself out of the way so completely anyway, that the transmission comes through so sometimes you say you know you're writing good poetry when you don't recognise it when you recognise it and you say to yourself, well, that's the night knees, I'm feeling good about that. And he's like, be suspicious of that. So when I would get to the points in some of the chapters, I would be like, I've no idea why they're talking like this. I've no idea why they're acting like this. And I really wish he hadn't said that. Yeah. I would then say, okay, I'm on to, some, I'm on to something here. This character is coming alive. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I mean, you should really be 
um, following the characters rather than what a good again what a good writer you are. If you find something on the page, I think that um, you go, oh well, that's a well constructed sentence. You're taking yourself right yeah, out totally. of what you're supposed to be doing. Totally. And and the combination of, of true true life and fiction, I said it's completely fiction, but obviously there are some incidents in there that um, I did live through and experience and that I always remembered and I always did want to write. And Jack Spicer always says a great an, an amazing amazing thing. He says um, sometimes things happen because they want to be written. Mm-hmm. And I love taking that idea of reality and your own story and thinking, okay, what is the thing that wants to be written that's coming through these various experiences in your life? You know? So in a way, do you mean people um, are the people they are or events unfold the way they are because they deserve to be memorialised yeah, in some it, way? Yeah, in a certain way, yeah, there's something in, there's something pushing through and there's something pushing through that wants to be realised and that is using you as a certain tool, maybe even quite coldly, certainly to realise itself, you know? Uh, going back to, you know, you mentioned the beats and there's certainly that, I can see there in that you can um, I don't know how you work but I could almost imagine you sitting and just writing and writing and writing and seeing what came out of that and then I mean what was the editing you're talking about you had an editor what was the editing process out of there or was the novel almost there but the it was almost there I mean it was almost there structurally it was structured pretty much exactly like that um, the editing process for me was obsessively obsessively going through each character and making sure it understood his voice completely and his language but more importantly than anything the character's rhythms that was the absolutely vital thing I think the way the characters you understand a character and they start to come alive when you understand the rhythm of the character so I think the editing process is getting further out of my syntax further out of my punctuation and allowing the characters to burst through the, the kind of structures of how you would arrange language or even conversations or sentences traditionally. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your appendix so I can, yeah. and your index as well, which is, as I said in the review, I've done a few index in my time and I've never seen one which is so detailed. You're like, <laughs> right, ah, and 30, and you go, what kind of is this? I mean, what was your thinking behind, behind this? Was it almost like, right, I, I know I've spent all this time with this book and I'm going to make sure I, I kind of almost notate it. Yeah. yeah, what it was, well, you'll notice in the actual index, there's loads of appendices, the actual index, there are no characters in the index at all. There's no characters. I wanted the index itself to be almost like the topography of the book. Yeah, you know what, what I mean? It's like, absolutely. Yeah, so the topography is there, and that the topography means it moves from actual locations to moods, to records, to things like that. And also, there are things in the index that you wouldn't really be able to... I said what I wanted, by the end time the book comes to an end, I wanted it to have a certain form of life. What I would, and then what I intended was that you can then read the book backwards. Because if you start with the index, you'll actually find out things, or you'll have parallel takes on things that happen the other way in the book that you can only know by starting with the index. For instance, there's an interaction early on in chapter two with Big Patty and a guy from uh, the one called Starverse. And you, you only get Patty's side of the conversation in that chapter. But if you read the index before you got there, you would have the one whole starver side of the conversation, which is actually in the index. So as it's named, a navigational aid. Yes, exactly. But it's also, I wanted it to be able to, that Airdrie could, Airdrie could become a place of a ridiculous, strange, surreal place of pilgrimage. If you want to find out, although if what you do is you look, find the location in the back there, yeah. you can then go to it in Airdrie and then look in the book and find out what took place there in Memorial Device and I just loved that idea. So I wanted it to be like you said, semi, not academic, but yeah, like a semi, like a guidebook yeah, that could actually yeah. a field guide for use in the field. You know? 
Uh, I, it, I mean, it was astonishing. I mean, that's the thing. From cover to cover, the book is astonishing because it just throws up these things that you're like, all right. It just, it's great to find something just so unexpected. Wow. Um, you, I, the reason I asked about if the music was an influence is because I know you'd also written England's Hidden Reverse. Yes. Um, which I didn't know much about. But I'll admit this to you now, after finishing the book, I went, I want to read more David Keenan, and I went out and got it. <laughs> so I now know uh, that it's uh, kind of looking at Coil, Current 93, and Nurse with Wound, isn't yes. it? I mean, three underground bands, for want of a better term. Yep. So can you talk a little bit about that book, or just that kind of music? That, you know, well, one of the reasons I wrote that book was I was definitely... Fa- and Throbbing Gristle's a big group that features yeah. in it as well. Throbbing Gristle are really key for me. And I think... When I was talking about punk earlier on, I think Robin Gristle were the first group to really fully deliver on punk's failed promise to yeah. liberate music from musicians. Although, in a way, TG were pre punk. I mean, 75 yeah, yeah, they were getting yeah, together, which is quite incredible. So, I began to see this alternate history, you know, that, that I'd played on the, uh, uh, just beneath the surface, and certainly in English music. And I, I, the reason I became fascinated about it as well was because, as we were talking about earlier on with the post punk thing, is these groups for me joined the dots to so much alternative sources of information. Yeah. You know, about different writers, about magic, whether it was Austin Osman Spear or things like um, uh, uh, the Viennese actionists, all these different things that I never knew about before. They became a sort of source of an alternative history. And in the UK as well, strange artists and musicians who had been kind of like pushed out of mainstream narratives yeah. of, 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 of contemporary culture it was like a, this queer strange yes. underground uh-huh. queer in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sense of sexuality but also just in an odd way of subverted mainstream ideas so I became fascinated with this whole scene it was quite shady and had never really been written yeah. about so I was writing on and off about this music for The Wire and I, be- and I wanted to pull all this together and combine a survey of all the underground artists that they sort of uh, uh, brought back to light along with the story of their own fast I think it's one of the most fascinating adventures in, in contemporary UK music is what went on with these groups because they were all linked and worked together and things like that as well and it was a fascinating story and like this is Memorial Device now, it was a crazy story they were so yeah. far out they were so involved in completely off the wall wild things yeah. and I'm always attracted and fascinated by Crazy wild energy and wild characters, and so I was, I was really, and I'm a, I have a capacity for being around a lot of madness without it really infecting me too much. You know what that's I mean? A good, that's <laughs> a good trick to have, I'm quite happy with extreme <laughs> behaviour. It doesn't really get to me that much. So I like to be around these people. So I spent years interviewing everyone I could find who was involved in that music scene, yeah. travelling to, to meet them and working on that book, which took years and years and years. Aye. And then it was out of print for a long while, and it was going for crazy money on the internet. And Stranger Tractor offered to redo it and. Unfortunately, our initial publisher uh, was really uncooperative about uh, giving us the original, uh, you know, the original artwork and the original layout. So we had to Stranger Tractor had to relay it out again, but I think that worked to the best because yeah. they did an incredible job, and it's a beautiful looking book. Oh, it is, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know? And I think you're right. It's it's alternative. I mean, alternative such a terrible word, but truly alternative in the right word um, that m- most people not just have will never have heard of, but. Well, never even imagined existed a no. lot of the time. No. So I, I mean, there's, there's a, the link then into this is memorial device is even if this is a fiction, it could have happened. A lots of it could have happened, and some of it did happen. And yes. in, in all those ways, totally. I, and that's the whole. I keep going back to the possibility. The fact is, the possi- the possibility of it happening was very high. Yeah. The possibility seemed there. You know, it seemed the possibility was there at the time. So, um, you know, musician yourself. No, not anymore. Not anymore, but you have been in the past. <laughs> I have been, yeah. I don't play music anymore, but I have in the past, yes. Um, so, 
I mean, did that? Did your own uh, kind of experiences in bands and in music did that colour? You know, some of the the novel or uh, was that? It did. It did. It did. I know. I've written about music since I was like in my teens and ah, so. you've written for a lot of music magazines. I have. That's my main thing that I've done for like past twenty five years or something, and. Um, it's all music has always been totally important to me, but I thought I was always the opposite. You know how they always say that um like music journalists are like failed or like jealous like musicians. Mm-hmm. I was like a musician who was like a jealous music journalist. I wanted uh, to write more than I wanted to be uh, in bands. My hero was Lester Bangs. Yeah. And Lou Reed, but Lester Bangs was the big Lester Bangs was the thing that transformed my my life when I picked up psychotic reactions and carburetor dung, his first collection of writing. And again, talk about bringing everything together, joining the dots to all my all my interests. Lester did that. And his and the energy I, I like high energy I like the energy in writing and my for me my the school my the school I went to was the school of, of rock writing and yeah. that really taught me how to write an energetic style because I was never so interested in I never thought of myself as a critic I thought of myself as an evangelist yeah. I always wanted to engage with music that I loved and tell people why it was important but I didn't want to betray it or take it apart or you know or, or, or uh, sacrifice it for, to make some socio-political point yeah. I wanted to write music that write music <laughs> there we go yeah. I wanted to write writing that was enjoyable to read as the music was to listen to I wanted to have writing that was equal to it and that did not betray it and it's a good school to go to because you're, you're writing about something totally incoherent a little bit formless that's very difficult to apply language to so it's a challenge as a writer and my big challenge was to come up with a a, 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 a way of writing about music that was almost synesthetic synesthetic in a way you know when you're talking about sounds as being like shapes you had to develop a, a facility almost a little bit of a psychedelic facility and so that was good for me working on that for decades and trying to hone that language down and get that energy and then when I had that energy that's what I wanted the memorial device to have I wanted it to catch the energy yeah. that I got through writing about music and trying to match it you know I, I mean I, t- I totally agree I think that some of the greatest writing is the the best journalism whether it's music journalism or other types but particularly for me it was music journalism as well yeah. when you get that almost didn't matter the bands that they were writing about it yeah. was like the energy that they love and the passion and the knowledge totally. and, the, and where it would take you elsewhere it would take you oh, yeah. that's the, the kind of great writing and that's again why I kind of clicked so well with the book it's the structure of it the, 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 the way the chapters work they almost work individually in their own. They're almost like you can imagine if you were firing off, you know, this week's chapter on the Airdrie music scene. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. in the kind of crazy way that you're doing it. And folk, you know, getting it at the NME and going, what the hell's Dave doing? Right <laughs> yeah, right. But I also wanted it to be like, it's a book that you can engage in in loads of different ways. Yes. You can pick it up and read one random chapter yeah. and it will work on its own and you can engage with it that way. And that's why I said about the thing going backwards as well. I wanted a book you could come to from so many different angles. People are always saying, like, in the era of the internet and ebooks and Twitter, is the novel dead? Well, I think all you've got to do, really, is raise your game and make a novel that you can engage with in so many yeah. ways. But in novelistic terms, it's still possible. And Because I think there's still some... With fiction, the thing I've got with fiction is, we're, you were talking about the, 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 earlier on, that the sense... The, what you can do with fiction is anything. Yes. Anything is still possible. But you need to get all the stresses and strains right. If you can make your novel internally coherent then you can do anything you want in the novel as long as it's internally coherent. So that was a big thing with me. And I think that's a thing you get from Nabokov. I think all Nabokov novels are almost like hermetically sealed worlds or parallel uni- Nabokovian universes. Uh-huh. And I wanted to do that as well. Have this universe that worked on its own terms, but that was perfectly formed to facilitate that. So that when, when, a, when a mannequin does float over away over the glen like a like ball lightning and a suspected murder around the back of a Chinese restaurant in Airdrie, you don't. It doesn't. You're not suddenly ju- ju- uh, sort of like 
jumped out of the reality yeah. of the book. In fact, you've just gone deeper into it, yeah. you know? Aye. So I wanted to have that possibility it was there all the time. Well, I, I, there's a couple of things that uh, occurred to me as well. Um, one, now that you've said that you could, you know, read it backwards, I, what I thought at the time was you could plant yourself right, you could open that right in the middle and suddenly been thrown into this story yes. and I've gone that way or that way, left totally. and right with it. But also the way that kind of Airdrie is described at times, it's almost like, well, here's the next circle of, not hell, but <laughs> the next circle of, uh, of interest, you know. And you, what I mean is going deeper down, yes. and deeper down. And, you know, so on this first level, you think this book's going to be about music scene. And then it goes down and you say, no, no, it's so much more. And it's yeah. so much more. And by the time you get to the bottom, you think, I'm going to have to take this journey again because I'm not quite sure how I got here. Well, it's funny because one thing I didn't realise at the time was I have seen quite a few people say that they thought it was quite dark and that didn't occur to me at all when I was writing it. But it, I do, it does kind of click now and I do see it that there is an aspect of descent that mm. goes through the book and you're totally right that by steps you're getting in deeper and deeper and deeper and quite tragic things happen, yes. very quite sad things happen. I mean... And to some of the... the, the, the I mean, a lot of the characters are just fantastically uh, charismatic but you don't have a cop out for saying and you know and don't worry folks at all ended happily ever after you went well they went and did this and this is actually what happened because that's what happens and also I wanted it, I didn't want it to build up to the big thing like um, say when one of the major characters dies and you find I, I thought well we'll find that out halfway through and then I can mess with the chronology a little bit as yeah. well I'm not going to build to this at all and I thought I'll build we'll build a sort of momentum not even from huge events but from an, almost like a psychic accumulation of detail you know, yeah. and the descent's very important because all the way through the book, lots of different people are having very similar visions. Because when I talked about it keyed to the organs, a lot of people in the book will talk about the organs themselves, yes. and they keep having this vision of descending through the sea, of going to the bottom of the sea. What are these? What are all these wrecks seem to be tied up? And this vision happens again and again, again, of plunging the depths of the body as well. So I wanted that to part. That was paralleling the depths that the book plunges as we go on and on and on. So after, uh, you know, you said this, this book, this novel's a result of our writing over a huge period of time. Yes. Would you, are you thinking of doing another? Well, uh, well, that's what I've said. I've actually got another uh, five novels complete. So complete? Oh, yeah, I, did, complete. I thought you maybe meant you'd been doing them and they'd kind of come together. No, they're all com they're complete. Yeah, they're, so I've got, I, so yes, I have another one and it, it looks like Faber will be doing my second novel which is going to come from that batch as well. That's ah, a publisher's dream and they say, have you got anything else? And you go, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, mate, <laughs> yeah. here's another five. <laughs> Usually it's like, mm, I'm thinking and somebody rushes away and does like a thousand words. Because I had this thing though, I was like, how do you know when when it's going to stop, when it's going to dry up. Yeah. As long as you're writing, as long as you're working, as long as you're That's on. absolutely right. Yeah. Write and write and write. Because I always remember Dylan talks about his late 60s thing and he says, he calls it the great forgetting. He just lost the ability to do it. And who knows if you, and as I've said, every time as a writer, you sit down to write, it's an act of faith. Yeah. And it's going to happen and it's going to come. And uh, you just never know what's going to turn off. So I was like, in those 10 years, I was like, the most important thing is why it was on, get it down. And so there was you a know? kind of fear that if you didn't, it might just, it never come back. Maybe. Well, it was more like there was a there was a state of almost demonic possession over ten years that gave me no no nothing no option but to write these books, and I did yeah. think I was losing my mind. Yeah. And at points I did struggle with my. I was writing special. There was one book I wrote called The Tomb of the Song, and I did start to struggle with my sanity as I was being sucked into it because I really again it was an example of like what where the hell is this book going? Mm. What is it? What is it dredging up? Where does it come from? And I do remember one day walking in in the West End of Glasgow in the midst of another book which I've since finished and just but actually thinking to myself 
I've what have I been spent the last ten years doing? I'm a madman. This is insane. No one cares. No one will ever read it. It's mm-hmm. mad. But I was possessed. The yeah. books just were written one after the other, and just like a huge big. Have you know? got a vision now of you suddenly pulling out your Lord of the Rings set in the west coast of Scotland? <laughs> <laughs> As they make the journey from you know Coatbridge to the west coast or something like that. No, it's funny. I mean, there is definitely there's one of the, the there's a. There is a whole lot of theme books in amongst there, which is kind of like a weird sort of a magical, uh, cabalistic weird parable, which is set in the West Coast of Scotland over a, over a period of decades. And it's a massive book, so my Lord of the Rings, my West Coast of Lord of the Rings is in there, actually, it's funny you say that. <laughs> well, David, I think, you know, you and I could probably sit and talk for the rest of the night, but I'm very aware this is a podcast. Um... You know, it's rare I do one of these and talking to the writer that it makes me want to go and reread the book again, but you've managed that tonight. So thanks very much, David, for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a real pleasure after. And um, we'll be back very soon um, with someone completely different. Cheers. Cheers.